and study these things with me. Now, we're going to be looking at worship, fellowship, and discipleship. And I believe this order is very important because, you know, so many times we want to teach people who have, you know, maybe just learned about Jesus themselves. We want to teach them that they need to go out and make disciples. And while that is true, I think that there's a certain order to it that we need to pay attention to. And I believe that order is worship first, fellowship, and then discipleship. Let me explain as we work our way through these things. For starters, let's take a look at worship. And I want you to think about this because there's I'm going to be kind of referencing several passages that I'm not going to give you, you know, the book chapter and verse of them necessarily, but what I would what I would encourage you to do is to open up your Bible, start maybe in the book of Genesis and just kind of read about how people were worshiping God for the first really few thousand years of history. Because, you know, worship, whenever we think of it, we think of, oh, okay, well, in order for us to worship, we go to church. Well, I would also encourage you to maybe read the New Testament and sort of see what the purpose of church actually is. Because what I'm convinced of is, yes, there's part of it that's mentioned that we worship together. But almost any way that we worship together when we, we come as a church, you can pretty well worship like that by yourself, too. You don't have to come together. But worship is so, so important because, you know, from the very beginning of time, what we see with with people who are faithful to God is they were able to worship God. In fact, it wasn't for several thousand years that they even had places that they would go to worship and gather in large groups like at the tabernacle or the temple. But those came years and years later. And of course, we have the the synagogue that came even after the the Old Testament was written. And those were all different places in which they they would worship. But a lot of the worship that you read in the Old Testament and the New takes place at home or you know, in, in various places, just wherever someone who is a follower of God might find themselves. Now, let me also tell you a few things about the word of worship, because I think that's so powerful and so important. You know, the word worship, it means to kind of, you know, bow down. In fact, I love the connection and the the, uh, the image that is uh, mentioned in the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, because in Strong's uh, Concordance, 
it mentions kind of like how a dog will will lick its master's hands and sometimes the word worship is connected with you know kissing like kind of bowing down and and kissing which you know to us it seems all weird but i think the dog connection it makes sense have you ever been there and seen a dog who is submitting to its master when a dog is submitting to its master it bows down interesting enough doesn't it and it might even lick you know the hand or feet or just whatever it can lick to kind of show that submission that I think is a is a beautiful connection. Not that I'm saying we need to to lick Jesus' feet or God's feet, you know, as if we could really even do that. But that type of submission, that type of worship, that is what it means to worship, to bow down and to recognize how great our God is. And it's been done um, in uh, um, uh, for for thousands of years since the beginning of time. We see the different forms in which worship takes place. I want us to look at a, a few of them from the New Testament together. If you look at Matthew chapter 4, now this is going to be kind of a negative view of worship, but there's a positive reason behind it. In Matthew chapter 4 verse 1, we this is where uh, we read, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And if you remember, among those temptations that he receives, in verse 8 we get this one. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Now, um, interestingly enough, you know, he quotes in verse 10, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Um, that you is actually singular in both of those times. You know, worship the Lord your God. That's a singular you. And serve um, and you serve him only. Uh, that's a singular word as well right there, connected there. Um, and I know that doesn't translate all that well in English because we don't have the singular, you know, you and, and you're as opposed to like y'all, even though we, we do in the South, you know, we make that connection. But uh, I don't think that we, we translate it too, uh, too many times like that. But in the Greek, it is there. It is that, uh, that singular there. And it goes back to what the Hebrew was too. The Hebrew was uh, a singular for, you know, this, you need to worship. You, specifically you. Um, yes, we can worship together. But you yourself needs to worship. And that I think is so important that we need to get to the point to where we submit to God. Remember that dog connection there. That we worship before our God. Then that we understand what it means to worship. It's one of these things that can best be explained whenever we experience it ourselves. Have you ever had that moment when you maybe just witness something that is so great that God has made and you just have this moment that you think, this is awesome. Well, it's awesome because it has produced a sense of awe in you. That has to do with the worship. Whenever we can recognize what God has done. Maybe we're reading the Bible and we see this story and we, we instantly you know, start to, to piece all these puzzles together and recognize that the whole Bible is this story about God and what he has done for us as humans. That can be an awesome moment that we can praise God, that we can worship God for what he has done. Now, there's other ways, of course, that that might, you know, come to us, that worship. And I believe that whenever we experience it, we recognize it. We might not always call it worship at first, but we recognize the importance of it, that submitting before God, who is our maker, who is our creator. And we see that is, is uh, where I believe um, it needs to start. It needs to start with us individually being able to worship the Lord, our God, and serve him only.
You need to worship. I need to worship. And I need to serve him. And you need to serve him as well. It doesn't matter what the person next to you is necessarily doing. You worship the Lord your God. You serve him. That is what you were called to do. We also find another passage in Matthew chapter 14 this time. In Matthew 14, um, you know, interestingly enough, uh, what we see here is that Jesus has been walking on uh, the water to them. They are obviously, you know, his disciples, uh, they're kind of scared about this whole thing and they start talking to him. So we're going to pick up here in verses 28 through 33. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water and came to Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Let me ask you something here. In verse 33, I know that this is a picture where we have multiple people there who are worshiping Jesus and saying, you uh, truly are the son of God. I know that we have that here in this passage, but do you really think that if any one of those individuals were there and it was only them, uh, would they have responded any differently? What I mean by that is this worship is not dependent upon, oh, they had to come together to worship. No, no, no. You have to choose to worship. It is your choice to submit to God, to bow before him, to recognize truly you are the son of God. At least when you're talking about Jesus Christ, you know, that's, that's the statement that's made. That is what worship is about. Now, the next thing is where we get into more so the church, really, and that's with fellowship. See, I'm convinced in uh, uh, my understanding uh, of the scriptures that the number one purpose of the church is not really so that we can you know, come together and worship God collectively, because we don't really see too many times that, that that's really stated. It is some, but for the most part, I believe the purpose of the church is to have this fellowship, now, sometimes we throw around uh, the, you know, the word fellowship, and, and sometimes we don't always really know what it means. And I think one of the best images for us to sort of hold on to and recognize what it means is just by taking the word apart, you know, fellowship. Um, it's been described to me, and I don't even know who came up with this, but they describe fellowship as it's two fellows in a ship. Now, the first time I heard that, I was like, okay, what, what do you mean by that? But here's the connection. When you have two people who are in a ship— you have to work together. And, you know, there's nowhere else that you can go right there. So you have to stay together. You know, you have to stay together. You have to work together if you at all want the journey to be a success. Now, you know, I don't know so much about a ship and what all goes into there. I know that it would take, you know, a lot. Um, I've been on canoe trips before. And if you've got the person in front or the person in back, and if, if they're on different pages as to where they're wanting to go, then, you know, it's going to, the canoe is going to go crazy. If you can't steer it properly, you have to be on the same page. You have to work together. That, I believe, is a wonderful picture and a wonderful reason why we are called to gather together as a church. It's for fellowship, to build one another up. Not so much worship. You can do that yourself as an individual. But you can't fellowship yourself. You have to fellowship with other people, with other Christians. And to this, I want us to look at the, uh, the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, I think that we get a beautiful um, passage. You know, so many times we focus on this is the, the passage that has the different seven ones that unifies us. But, you know, there's so much more in this chapter that is worth us looking at. And look at this beautiful image of what the church is. 
In Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, I want to read it all together, and then we'll, we'll take a look at these, uh, these different chunks and notice a few things here. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. When you look at this passage, this is what fellowship looks like. You see, the whole purpose of the church is, and the whole reason why Christ has uh, equipped um, his people for these different works of service, you know, he's given them all these different tasks. Some are apostles, some prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. He, he lists all these things. The whole purpose behind it, verse 12, is so that um, the body of Christ, the church of Christ, may be built up. Why? Verse 13, so that we can become mature. And he also mentions right here, um, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Do you see these, these images here? Our purpose on why we have these different talents and why we have these different parts to play in the church and why we are called to have this fellowship in the church is to equip his people, to build up the church, to be able to be mature, to, to obtain this fullness of Christ. All these connections that are mentioned in verses 12 and 13, we, we see the reason behind it. We see that we are called not to be like babies, you know, not to be like infants in, in verse 14. No, that's not what we're supposed to be like and just kind of carried a, a, along and, and tossed back and forth by the waves and, and stuff. Uh, that can be a horrible thing if we don't know where to go and if we don't have a sense of direction. Instead, in verse 15, what we are called to do is to grow to become a mature body. He's once again going back to this maturity. It's not enough for us to just remain infants. You know, if you were to see a a child who by the time they reach, uh, you know, uh, 10 years, they still look like they're an infant, you'd say, something's wrong. You know, you might not say that to the parents and because, you know, that's just maybe kind of a little bit mean, I, I guess you might think, but, uh, or a little bit, you know, uh, rude in, in that sense. But you would definitely ask, yourself at least what's wrong with this child you know 10 years old still looks like an infant but what if the child got 15 20 and still look like an infant we would say something is seriously wrong with that child and i'm not trying to make fun of of somebody who might have a, a, a growth problem that's not what i mean at all what i mean is you recognize that's not how it's supposed to work there is a problem there if if that is the case but how many times do we see a church that has been maybe established for you know many years, let's say 10 years, 15, 20 years. And what if you look at that church and they still look like an infant? Something's not right. Because what we are called to do is we have been given these different gifts as the body of Christ to be able to build each other up so that we can um, build each other up so that we can become mature, this whole measure, the fullness of Christ. We also see here, um, about being able to grow in verse 15, to be, once again, this mature body. And we see in verse 16 
that the image about grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That's what we are called to do. We are called as the body of Christ to be like those fellows in a ship working together for a common good. And that good is submitting to the head of Christ. It starts with us as individuals being able to worship God and recognize him and submit to him and his rule. Then we have fellowship that happens in the church. And then only after we understand that fellowship that is supposed to take place in the church and building each other up so that we can grow together, then we see the third and the final thing that we're going to look at, and that is discipleship. Now we see discipleship. It most certainly is important, and I would, I would agree with that. But you must learn those first two things at the beginning. You know, you you don't necessarily have to know everything. I wouldn't say that because I don't want to scare somebody into thinking, oh, well, you know, I don't know enough because a lot of times people are scared of discipleship and, and telling others about Jesus because they think, well, I don't know enough. And that's not what I'm necessarily saying. I'm just saying you have to have at least a basic concept of what worship is and what fellowship is in order for you to understand the importance of discipleship. Now, many times we look at the, the final words of Jesus that are recorded for us in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 28, I love this passage, um, verses 16 through 20, we read this. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Hmm, number one, isn't that interesting? Verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, how many times have you heard this? Perhaps you've even heard me say that the layout that we see here is the first thing that we see is to make disciples. Verse 19 says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing, verse 19, still, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the second thing. Now we see the third thing in verse 20, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So first thing is to go and make disciples. Second thing, baptize them. Third thing, teach them to obey everything I have commanded. So that, that would be teaching them to obey the teachings of Jesus. Now, that's how we typically look at that. So we start with, oh, well, we need to, to make disciples. So we think that whenever somebody immediately becomes a disciple, that's the task. However, actually notice some things about this passage. Who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to the 11 disciples who have already undergone a three-year personal training plan with Jesus himself. They have been taught all of these things. They have prepared to go and make disciples of all nations. So after you have prepared to go and make disciples of all nations, then people who are mature in Christ, that's who this is written to, verses 19 and 20. It's written to mature Christians who are wanting other people to be followers of Christ. They are called to go and make disciples of the nations, to baptize them, of course. And then in verse 20, we see teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. They have to be taught. See, th that, is, that is part of the process. Whenever you make a disciple, it's not enough just to, to get somebody to say, well, you know, I believe in Jesus, and then to baptize them. Because, yeah, that helps in some ways. But if that's the end of the story in that person's life, we have failed to really make disciples of all the nations. Making a disciple means that we stick with that person enough to teach them to obey the teachings of Jesus, the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus 
is following God. That, that's what he constantly pointed in everything that he taught and everything that he did. He pointed us to the Father. <clears throat> and here um, in discipleship, part of that process, it's not just enough to just, you know, uh, get people to believe in Jesus and get people to be baptized. Those are great things, but there's more to it. We also have to teach those individuals. So in order for discipleship to take place, you've got to understand something about worship. And you've got to be willing to worship God, to worship Jesus Christ, his son, through which redemption comes to us. Then you also have to understand something about fellowship, something about what it means to be a part of the church, to work together, to build each other up, to grow. That's what the church is all about, to encourage each other. And then finally, after you get some glimpse of what worship and fellowship are, then discipleship can take place. Discipleship is so important, so powerful, but we've got to have the right foundation. That foundation always comes down to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And I hope that we can, you know, not always just rush discipleship, but take the necessary time in order to teach people properly, to be able to follow Jesus with everything um, that, uh, that they have every day of their life. Have you made the commitment to follow Jesus. Why such a gift came down to me when all around was lost. He changed my life, he made me whole, he paid my bitter cost. The last command my Savior gave just before he had to part. The great Starts in the heart. Though I'm unworthy of his love, he's placed within my hands a treasure of unbounded grace to spread across the lands. The greatest story ever sung, he has asked me to impart. The great commission starts in the Starts in the heart. The Great Commission starts in the heart.